Welcome to our Human Experience Podcast. I'm Professor Catherine Colborn, the Head of the School of Humanities and Social Science at the University of Newcastle in Australia. Our school is dedicated to assisting our students to become critical thinkers, enabling them to appreciate and understand the world around them. Our researchers examine all facets of what it means to be human. We form partnerships with like-minded groups and researchers. This podcast series features thought-provoking conversations with our humanities and social science academics who are helping to improve the human experience through their research. In 2020, we will be talking with researchers about language and culture, youth identity and the economy, the experiences of older gender minorities, public health policy and the history of domestic service and much more. Thanks for joining us. Hi, I'm Belinda Galbraith and today we are talking to Duncan McDuira, Professor of Urban Sociology. Duncan examines the relationship between rural-urban space migration and the kind of world this creates, particularly in the borderlands of India. Recently, he's begun researching technology and digital urbanisation. Thanks for joining us today, Duncan. Thanks, Belinda. To start with, I'd love to hear about how you got into this area of research and what is it for you that draws you to study the borderlands? I think borderlands are really fascinating spaces because on the one hand, there's seemingly a lot going on. They're kind of at the intersection of all these things moving across borders. They're where countries take advantage of different taxes, different laws, different land regimes to, say, build zones for a pharmaceutical factory or to uh, store all this agricultural produce before it goes across the border. There are also places where workers might come from one side of the border for the, uh, to the other, for the day, for a week, for a month. So they're really kind of dynamic zones of flows of goods and people crossing. We talk so much about a borderless world, but borders and borderlands is where you see how borders shape things and are shaped by what, what moves across them. So I find them really, really fascinating spaces. On the other hand, you can go to borderlands where nothing seems to be happening, where you don't even know where you are. They're kind of wastelands. You're not sure when you cross from one country into another. Or you go down a mountain pass and suddenly someone tells you you've gone from India to Myanmar. So I'm really fascinated too by how uneven borderlands are. Some are really active and dynamic sites and some are really kind of quiet, almost dead ends. Mm, excellent. It sounds like, um, you know, an interesting space to study. What inspires you to do this work and why do you think it's important to study urban sociology? I think borderlands are important to study because we talk so much about state formation, state decline, sovereignty, lapses of sovereignty. And it feels like borderlands are like a place on the ground where this happens in motion, in ways we can see and identify and we kind of get a, a kind of view that is full of people and things and objects, etc. For me, I became really fascinated in borderlands at the start of my research career about 20 years ago. And gradually in the last, say, 10 years, became much more interested in the cities that were being created in borderlands or were transforming in borderlands or were also declining in borderlands. So it's almost as if the city becomes the ideal space or site to follow these borderlands transformations. 
because almost anything that happens there gets lodged in the urban space somehow. A dormitory for migrant workers, uh, a place for, for factory workers to, to stay and live, new surveillance and technology regimes to monitor people moving across, big military bases and installations, etc. And then all of these parts of everyday life, markets where people sell stuff that comes across the border, markets where people sell stuff to go across the border, and of course all this smuggling and trafficking and illicit movement across the spaces all gets lodged in the city somehow. Mm. I was going to ask you also about landscape and what that means to you. I believe, you know, landscape-oriented research is, is kind of something that really interests you. It is. I think for me the landscape is the easiest way I can begin to understand a space by looking at the landscape. And the landscape constantly changes, but it's almost a barometer that if you look at it in June, what does it then look like in October? If you looked at it in 2009... What does it look like in 2015, for example? And landscapes become a really powerful medium in the humanities and social sciences generally as a way into understanding place and space. And it's a very kind of open medium in that way. It's often seen to be dominated by people who might study fixed landscape, like paintings or photographs. But it's become much more of a dynamic way of studying transformations, change, the built environment, the natural environment, how they interact with one another, how they transform one another. And it's from that kind of view of landscape and getting then inside that landscape and experiencing it that I find easiest in approaching complex spaces. And I believe it helps with your teaching as well. You're, you're teaching a course called Landscape and Power. Can you tell me a bit about that? Yeah, Landscape and Power has been a very fascinating course so far with a colleague of mine, uh, Associate Professor Jason Cons from the University of Texas at Austin. We both studied borderlands for much of our academic careers. He does a lot of work in Bangladesh, uh, particularly around areas that are being affected by fluctuations in tide and water and aquaculture, farming, shrimp farming, etc., and the way in which awareness of climate change is shaping the way land and landscape is governed, managed and politicised. I've done all this work in, in borderlands and borderland cities. So I'm looking at kind of landlocked areas. He's looking at coastal areas. We really wanted to work together on a project for a long time. And we'd both taken up jobs in, in new places we weren't familiar with. And so we had this idea of taking what we've learned about landscape from South Asia in particular and thinking, well, how would that work in a place like Austin in Texas and Newcastle in New South Wales? Because it's usually the reverse process. People think of lessons learned in the global north and then they take that to developing countries to see if they still hold. We wanted to see if we could do the reverse. And we designed a course that is taught simultaneously at Austin and at Newcastle. And it was around the idea of landscape and power. And so we have a, a shared set of kind of conceptual or theoretical readings for students. And then we get them to go out into landscape a lot, into the landscapes around them and think about how they can read economic, political, social changes, events, happenings on that landscape. It's really, really interesting the way students latch on to that idea because as soon as they leave the classroom, they can practice it. They see a landscape as soon as they walk outside. They see a landscape... Uh, in their neighbourhood. They see a landscape as they're driving in a car or going on a train. So they're suddenly attuned to all of these everyday things are real things you can study. They're real objects of academic inquiry. And they're really interesting places to try out social theory, ideas about society, change, power, etc. So we've really enjoyed it so far. 
we've got some shared activity happening between the cohorts in different places. And it's interesting because I'm also always writing about landscape, talking to students about writing that's really helped me and getting their views on it. I learn a lot from them in that process. It sounds like a really good uh, local application of your research here and um, getting the students to look at our local area as well. I was going to ask about the challenges of urbanisation and obviously there's increasing urbanisation happening across the world. What effect is that having on particularly the societies that you study? It's really dynamic, as you say, and the patterns are often only looked at in obvious ways. So, for example, people look at people, people look at scholars and researchers look at those who leave uh, rural areas or smaller towns and go to big mega cities, but they don't really pay much attention to the spaces in between. Yet, what we would call small and medium-sized cities, so cities of around 500,000 people or less, they're the most rapidly growing urban spaces in most of Asia and actually in most of, of the developing world. And it's likely true in Australia to a certain extent, like some of the largest growing towns in Australia um, are those mid-sized towns as people leave the bigger cities behind. With megacities, they're often always so big that the increase in people doesn't actually dramatically transform their landscape in the same ways as it does to places starting with a smaller base. So if we're looking at the volume or speed of change, it's sort of small and medium-sized cities where you can learn so much. So... I find it really interesting to use those cities as a starting point. It's almost that they're a microcosm for how urbanization is changing. And in the areas where I work, yeah, a lot of people have migrated far to Delhi, to Bangalore, uh, to Hyderabad, to Calcutta, thousands of kilometers away. And in fact, earlier research of mine in, in the late aughts and early 2010s was around people from the Northeast region, the borderland, living and working in Delhi city. And that was really, really interesting. But I think what it also stopped me seeing was these almost near migrations that happen. People leaving fields to go to the city or families splitting up and one person will go to, to one city and then try to get to a slightly bigger city, leaving some people behind or almost leaving a path of migration in different ways. So I'm interested in, in the movement and mobility that creates urban change. But then I'm also interested in how that's experienced and how that's lived and what it feels like, what it's like for people living there, what they make of their lives in these places when they decide to go back, when they decide to try and move further further on and to, to, to move greater distances. So these kind of intermediary spaces of urbanization are what's so fascinating to me. And it's also important that they're everywhere. You could do this same research in Malaysia. You could do this same research in Thailand. You could do this same research in Zambia. And it's a really kind of crucial uh, intermediary space to study globalization, urbanization, and all of the limitations on that kind of change. I'm interested to hear your thoughts about how what people think when they move from a rural area to a city and how they live out their dream in the city. And is it actually uh, what they hoped it would be? Have you found some interesting information about that? It's really, I think, profound that so much of the rationale for migrating is aspirational. I want my life to be better. And it's often aspirational in reference to the place where people are. This place is terrible or nothing here works or this place is dirty or it's violent or it's just not very cool, right? Especially for young people, sometimes their, their reasons for leaving are not really rational calculations about I'll earn this much more money, have this much of a better job. And often people know that. 
but they're driven by something else. And it's a desire to sort of make something of yourself, which is, which is a very old human desire. But I think one we see manifesting now more and more and more because it's so much more easier to move and get started in place. It's so much easier to maintain a connection to where you're from. And technology makes it much easier to, say, send money back or get things sent to you, et cetera, et cetera. So movement and mobility between places means this kind of urban migration is more possible and means people can kind of test their dreams. And obviously, there's a lot of broken dreams. Obviously, for a lot of people, urban life doesn't pan out for them the way they wanted it to. I've always been interested in then how people articulate that back to back to, to family and friends back home. And they'll often keep the dream alive for people back home. A lot might be been invested in their migration. So they'll want to make out how good it was, how everything works out. It's very embarrassing to turn around and say, actually, it didn't work out for me in the city, or I hate it here, please bring me home. Or it's hard and difficult and people don't treat me well and I stick out or I speak the wrong language or the wrong dialect or my ethnicity or my race is really exposed here. And so a lot of people lie, fabricate, exaggerate stories to back home. The people back home, siblings, cousins, friends, family, they hear these stories and they think, well, I've got to do it too, right? Because it sounds great. I'm not necessarily willing to say everyone's really naive or gullible. There's certainly naivety as, as part of urban migration, especially among young people. But I think people are hopeful rather than naive. They want it to work out. They want it to be better. And they see someone ordinary. I, I was recently in Sikkim in the Himalayas and I was talking to a friend who was saying, oh, this person I know, they didn't even finish class 10 and they've got a job in Bangalore and you know, they're showing pictures on Instagram and Facebook about living this kind of urban life. And it's almost like, well, if they can do it, why, why can't I do it? And so I think that that's a really powerful um, medium to study is not just that people migrate, that they experience the city in a particular way, but they're constantly creating and circulating images and ideas about that life that are picked up back home in their social networks and social connections. That then pushes other people to make similar decisions or like decisions. And the reverse, it also forces some people to think, you know, I'm not sure about this for me. But overwhelmingly, those, those ideas and those imaginaries are positive. So urban migration is not going away, but its patterns change. And that's what's really interesting. I think. Mm. So it sounds like they're curating a, a certain uh, image of what it's been like to move away and keeping that up, keeping the dream alive for the people back home. It sounds interesting. I'm very interested to hear about your field work that you've done in India. You've spent quite a bit of time in some of the cities there. What was that experience like? And can you walk us through perhaps a typical day of field work there? I've always been interested in the fabric of a city, what it feels like to be in. There's a real limit to what you can read about something, obviously, in fieldwork disciplines. You have to believe that or you wouldn't do this kind of research. There's a real limit to what you can get from other people's images, other people's um, video, etc. And so to understand the fabric of the city, um, exploring it, on foot has been a really crucial part to the research I do. And I guess I'm inspired by a lot of the um, 
philosophy around walking urban space and this kind of incidental encounters, accidental findings, exploration that is not planned. There are planned parts. There are people you want to meet. There are certain sites you want to go to. But it's almost everything that happens in between that that's so uh, profound, interesting, engaging, but also puzzling and complex. You just find new things you just didn't think were there and they ruin your idea or they ruin your narrative, but they force you into to better research. It's almost the ultimate not having the answer before you go kind of research, which on the one hand makes it difficult to convince the people that either fund it or employ you that it's a good use of time. But if you can produce content and publications and interesting books and stories and articles, etc., over a number of years, I think you get that trust, that trust me, I know what I'm doing. I just need to be in this place for long periods of time over you know, different periods of different seasons, different years, etc. So for me, in, in Imphal in particular, which was a, a city in Manipur uh, on India's border with Myanmar, was one of the cities where I really started to push this as much as I could and really, really experiment with just unplanned ethnographic research in urban space. And so a typical day in Imphal would be um, probably getting up at 4am. Uh, it's very far east of Delhi, but India only has one time zone. So it means that it's often light very early in Imphal. Even in winter, it's light quite early. Um, but in summer, it means sort of waking up at, at 4 a.m., maybe meeting someone for breakfast at 4.30 or 5 in the morning. You eat a lot. Um, even though it's a city, people still have a very kind of um, rural uh, pattern to their day, eating a lot, eating early, as if they were going out into the fields to work for long hours. Um, and then... It's great to see the city come to life. You see a lot of people coming in from the outskirts, from the peri-urban areas to work, from rural areas to come to the markets to sell goods or to go to the urban boundaries to exchange their goods for someone else to bring it in. It's a place where they play polo. They've played polo apparently for thousands of years in Manipur. So you see weird sights like people walking horses around this really dilapidated urban environment with bits of concrete everywhere and... and um, iron rods sticking out of buildings and uh, roads that often don't go anywhere and you'll see in the early morning light horses trotting along. It's, it's really surreal and really wonderful. Uh, and then it'd be to wander around a neighbourhood, um, probably eat what people would call lunch there at 9 or 10 in the morning. Um, eating in the market's often a good idea because you'll find people, talk to them, um, uh, get a sense of, of what's happening, what news, what rumours are around about politics, about the day, about things that have happened. Um, and often in, in Imphal, because it's prone to strikes and blockades, it's, it's landlocked and it's very vulnerable. It depends a lot on outside food supply, outside petrol supply, and there's only a couple of roads that go into the city. So they're often blocked off by groups protesting for one thing or the other. But more than the blockades, it's sort of rumours about blockades, and then that leads to panic buying and all kinds of things. So the market is the place to see all of that happen, something we can relate to now. Um, and uh, so then I usually try and go out and take as many photos as I can. I take lots of photos, uh, mostly for my memory. For me, it's like taking notes. And with digital technology and big hard drives, I mean, I take thousands and thousands. And I'll take them of things like pipes, like pavements, uh, things that would never show up in, in a book or a publication, but really help me weave together the city later. Um, and... 
for me, it's almost like I run them as a, as a sort of um, slideshow when I get back or even a day or two later and then I write other notes on the side. I, I triangulate them with snippets of conversations I've had and maybe with formal interviews and things that I've recorded. And you can imagine over a long period of time, over several months in the field and several visits, this builds this enormous archive of a city that I've looked at with no particular plan in mind. And it's very comprehensive, but it's also very hard to reel in. And then one of the challenges in, well, what am I focusing on? What am I writing about? What do I reel in from this? And that's really how fieldwork goes for me. Imphal in particular is a city that has experienced a lot of curfew. And so people, even when there aren't curfews on, still have a curfew mentality. They wanna be off the streets by dark. Um, so nighttime is very, very quiet. There's not really much happening. Electricity supply can be quite erratic, although it's improved a lot in recent years. Um, but that makes going out at night really interesting, especially if you can wait a few hours to go at nine or 10 at night and see who is out at night and what goes on at night. There's a lot of patrols by the army, but then also by other militia and things like that. But then there are people out at night doing stuff, washing clothes in the street, um, walking animals, uh, doing tuitions in like a neighborhood house that sort of runs as a, a sort of night school. It's really uh, important to see a city at different times, at different cycles and rhythms during the day and during the months. Mm, it sounds fascinating to be immersed in the culture and the society for such a long time and get to really live the life of a local. You've got a book coming up this year that's due to be, due to be out later this year called Ceasefire City with Oxford University Press. I'm really interested to hear about that book. I believe it's about your time in Dimapur. Ceasefire City is a project I'm doing with a really good friend and colleague, uh, Dr Dolly Kikon from the University of Melbourne, who is from Dimapur. And we've known each other for many years and we've worked together a lot. So I was, I'd done this work in Imphal and I was really interested in, in different cities in the northeast borderland and, and what Imphal could teach me about others. And Dolly was really interested in thinking about this city where she'd grown up, but this city that also it's puzzling, right? It's a city that everyone leaves, but then it's also growing. Um, it's also a city where there's all this investment and it's really obviously transforming the landscape following the ceasefire. So we decided to, to do a book together and we decided to do it quite slowly over a number of years doing different approaches. So me being an outsider, I was much more interested in doing fieldwork in, in the way I described earlier, like slow and gradual, but looking at the landscape much more, meeting people, talking to people, but more or less getting their ideas about what to look at, where to go. And I wanted to build up a, a kind of idea about what, is a, what does a city look like that's now 20 years since the formal ceasefire between um, the Naga uh, independence movement and the Indian government. Yet it's a state that still has a lot of conflict in other places. And this city is almost like the in-between space. I mean, it really is um, a kind of enclave on the map that connects Nagaland to the rest of India and Nagaland then goes on to uh, into Myanmar and on the border. So it's almost this city that sort of sticks out. It's, it's an unusual territory. Dolly wanted to concentrate much more on the people in their lives given she grew up there and she's much closer to a lot of different people and we thought this approach would work quite well in that on the one hand you're telling the story of the city and on the other hand you're telling stories of people who live in the city and we kind of stitch those two parts of the book together. And we have a, a subtitle for the book that's something like militarism, capitalism, and urbanism. 
And it's a really, I think, neat way to tie together what we think is going on. So urbanism, it's becoming more city-like. It's trying to be governed like a city, which has caused a lot of controversy and, and crisis because it's actually indigenous land and tribal land for most of the city. Not all parts, but most of it. And people are anxious about their land being turned into a kind of normalised urban environment rather than these kind of small villages that, that are part of a city in terms of form, but governed as if you would govern. Um, villages. Militarism, because it still has a heavy presence of various Indian paramilitaries, army, and also Nagaland state police. So you'll see armed soldiers everywhere. There are really big transit camps in the city that move soldiers from there into other parts of the borderland and the frontier. And then there's a really huge ceasefire camp for members of the independence movement who agreed to the ceasefire. So they now live in sort of a separate mini city on the outskirts of town. And then capitalism, that uh, the northeast is a site of heavy investment. There's a big population of consumers. And as peace has come more or less to hold in these places, you see a lot of investment from other parts of India. So that's changing the landscape really dramatically. But you're also seeing investment from within, from riches got from coal and other extractive industries, timber. Uh, and other sectors. So there's a strong connection to the way the environment in parts of the state is, is going un is under increasing strain and stress and new buildings being built in Dimapur. And that's a really profound and dramatic landscape transformation. So we're trying to weave all these things together, but also to do th so through a series of events. So I looked at a few uh, sort of crisis events in the city and Dolly looked more at the lives of, of sort of residents, but particularly she was interested in artists. She was interested in those who deal with, with uh, rural practices in urban settings. We have a lot on hunting, urban hunting in, in Dimapur um, and also on death. It's a place where people come for healthcare, but a lot of people come actually to end life because the rural areas don't have much in the way of healthcare. And um, it's also a city that's experienced extreme violence for many decades. So it's a city where death is really um, at the forefront of everyday life. So the coffin shops everywhere, uh, hospitals uh, everywhere. And most people in Nagaland have an association of going to that city for something tragic, like, like the final days of a loved one, etc. We also tried to find fun and joy and strangeness in the city. And so a lot of uh, the, the book, and, and hopefully uh, they'll look good in, in print, has a lot of images and just images of the strange circuits that a city like Dimapur is enrolled in. It's a really kind of like uh, low-end globalization, like things that show up and end up in, in that, that city are really a different circuit of um, global movement than, say, a, a city like Delhi or Bangalore. Uh, this kind of real low-end odd stuff that ends up in the city, strange people, all kinds of charlatans and shaman and preachers and ministries all come through town. And we're quite interested in what shows up here and what do they do and how do they promote themselves in this place. So from really large church buildings that are just stunning, uh, is enormous, beautiful church architecture to slums uh, and informal housing to sort of new apartment blocks being built probably for speculative investment that maybe no one will live in. It became this incredible canvas to, to study what happens to a place when peace comes. It sounds like a really in-depth um, look at that, that city that you're talking about there and it sounds fascinating. We look forward to seeing your book come out later this year. Now, I believe your research for this year is, is turning to a different kind of trajectory towards technology and um, how that impacts urbanisation. Can you tell me a bit about wh where you're headed with that? In India, they've uh, 
one of the few developing countries to really take on the idea of smart cities. So the idea that you can retrofit or build from scratch urban environments that are really technology enabled, that are based on networked infrastructure. And this is something you see that's really common in places like the United Arab Emirates, Korea, uh, China, uh, Japan, and to a certain extent in Australia, though in Australia it's done much more by local governments within cities rather than cities as a whole. It seems really strange to be extending it to, to India in a lot of ways. Now, obviously, there's big tech cities in India where it, where it works really well, but India is building 100 smart cities, and many of these cities are in the borderlands where I've worked. And so it immediately struck me as this very odd puzzle about, well, here are places where you don't even always have electricity supply, yet there's an idea that they can, be, they can bid for smart city projects and that they'll get lots of money to do them and retrofit. So I became really interested in using that as a way into thinking about how does technology work in low technology environments? How do you bring really advanced and high-end technology and especially data-driven applications to areas where not much data gets generated? Can you force places and particularly can you force entire cities into a digital future? And what are the pains and lapses and unevenness about that process? So my work uh, recently has been very interested in that. I had a, an article come out on that recently that looked at the bids that sort of low technology cities are making to bring technological infrastructure to uh, their areas. Um, and that's worked out as a really interesting scoping exercise and I've, I've applied for further grants to explore that in much more detail, looking at a few case study cities in Northeast India. But it's also something you can see happening in places like Indonesia, in places like Rwanda, where governments are talking the language of smart cities and technology and seeing how they can retrofit cities for citizens in new ways through digital technology. It obviously has a lot of implications for things like surveillance, especially in cities that have been heavy, heavily militarized. So a lot of this language you hear in a lot of the literature around technologies and urbanization looks very different in borderlands and borderland cities. As an adjunct to that, I became very fascinated in artificial intelligence and how artificial intelligence works, again, in sort of low data and low technology environments, but places where it's being rolled out dramatically and also where it's rolled out elsewhere will impact these places. So along with a colleague from University of Sydney, Professor Kalevo Gulson, we began working on what is the relationship between artificial intelligence and development. And we wrote an article that came out late last year that has really, um, as the young people say, blown up. And so we're sort of struggling to keep track with trying to generate enough new research to sort of fill this, this uh, window of opportunity that's been opened by this article. And we're essentially looking at the way developing countries try to latch on to AI while at the same time relying on industries, particularly what, what's known in the industry as business process outsourcing. So for most people that means call centers, but it also means a lot of backroom data work from image tagging to um, looking after accounts for big engineering firms, a lot of which is outsourced to countries like India and the Philippines, which is the focus of our current project. Um, so India and the Philippines rely really heavily on those sectors to generate jobs, to help cities grow, to deal with well-educated populations who don't have enough work, and to try and stop a lot of people migrating out. Yet at the same time, artificial intelligence is at the moment and will in the short term really decimate those sectors of employment. So we're interested in both the way governments respond, but also how workers and people cope with that 
change. So it's brought me into a whole new realm of research on artificial intelligence, on robots, on the social life of robots, the social life of artificial intelligence, how people contend with it, because so much of what's written about artificial intelligence is about how it will affect economies like Australia, like the United States, like Europe, like Japan, etc. But yet it's also rolling out across the world and has a really uneven impact in developing countries as well. So that's really what we're trying to do. And we see a good three to five years of work in that space coming up. Mm, sounds like there's a lot coming up there. And we'll be watching that with interest and see how that takes off. Thanks so much for sharing with us today, Duncan. It's been fantastic having you here. Thanks for coming along. Thank you so much for having me, Belinda. <laughs>